0: Welcome back, my gardening friends, to another Focal Point Friday episode. Let's spend just a few minutes together reviewing a snippet of information from a previous episode, highlighting a new topic, or quickly focusing on a current event in the food and agriculture world. Let's get down and dirty. So as we move into June, the majority of us have gotten our tomato plants in the ground. If you are in the southern part of the northern hemisphere, you are probably well on your way to your first harvest. If you're a little bit further north of me, then you are probably just now getting your tomato plants into the ground, or you are anticipating being able to do that soon. And those of us here in west central Missouri are probably already starting to battle tomato diseases based on our humidity and our rain patterns. So I thought today would be a good time to revisit something about tomato plant diseases. Uh, I covered the top eight of these in episode 99, so we are going to revisit that one today. Enjoy. Now, I'm not going to hit all of the possible diseases that you could get on your tomatoes. I'm just going to hit the eight most common ones. There are honestly so many diseases that could hit your tomato plants depending on where you live. This would be a three-hour episode if I covered them all. So these are going to be the ones that I have seen and read are the most prevalent. Now, I've not had direct experience with all of them, thankfully, But I have a lot of resources from my college classes and all my grower's guides, so I'll do my best to relay the info on the ones that I'm not familiar with so you can at least get an idea of what to look out for and how to prevent or contain diseases in your tomatoes. I would always recommend doing a search on your local university extension service or plant lab website for diseases that are most common in your area so you're not freaking out about something that just isn't very common in your climate. So, without further ado, let's dig into the eight most common tomato plant diseases. First up, bacterial wilt. Bacterial wilt, it's also called southern bacterial blight, is a serious disease caused by Ralstonia solanocereum. Now, that last name there, solanacearum, tells you this is a disease of the solanaceae, right? Our tomatoes, our peppers, our potatoes, that sort of thing. This bacteria survives in the soil for extended periods, and it enters the roots through wounds made by transplanting, cultivation, insect feeding damage, what have you. This is different from the bacterial wilt that we see in cucumbers and other curcubits. That bacterial wilt is spread by insects, specifically cucumber beetles. This bacterial wilt is specific to tomatoes and their other solanaceae cousins, and resides in the soil. Now, high temperatures and high moisture speed the growth of this disease. The bacteria multiply rapidly inside the water-conducting tissues of the plants, that's the xylem, filling it with slime. (laughs) So this causes a really fast wilting of the plant while the leaves still stay green. And if an infected stem is cut crosswise, it's going to look brown and you're going to have these tiny droplets of a yellowish ooze coming out of it. Yum. So control of bacterial wilt when you have infected soil is really, really difficult. Um, Rotation with non susceptible plants like your corn, beans, cabbage for at least three years between planting other Solanaceae will provide some control. You do not want to use peppers or eggplant or potatoes, sunflowers, or cosmos in that rotation. You do want to remove all infected plant material if you discover that your plants are infected. Though, unfortunately, there is no chemical control for this disease. So you might consider growing all of your susceptible solanaceous plants in a separate, newly prepared garden site if you discover that you have bacterial wilt. You want it to be completely separate from your original garden. And then you also want to make sure that you thoroughly hose off all the soil from any of your tools that you used in the original infested beds and thoroughly sterilize them before you use them in your new garden site. Next on our list is early blight. Early blight, also known as Alternaria leaf spot, is one that I am very familiar with. This disease is caused by the fungus Alternaria lanariae, and it first pops up as these small brown lesions, mainly on the older foliage of your tomato plants. The spots then get bigger, and they form these concentric rings in a bullseye pattern, usually smack dab in the center of the diseased area. And then the, t- the tissue surrounding the spots is going to start turning yellow, a sickly color. Now, here's what usually causes the biggest problem. If you get both high temperatures and high humidity at this stage of the disease, a lot of the foliage on your plant is just going to be killed off. Plants with early blight may also get lesions on the stems that look very similar to the ones on the leaves, and it sometimes causes collar rot, which is where the lesions will girdle the plant right at the soil line. If all of this doesn't kill the plant off, and it does manage to produce fruit, the fruit will often have really large lesions, usually covering most of the entire fruit with those concentric rings, and then the infected fruit usually just drops right off the plant. Now, this fungus survives on infected debris in the soil, it survives on seeds, it will show up on volunteer tomato plants and other solanaceous plants like potatoes and eggplants, plus black nightshade, which is a very common weed, and it is also in that same family. That's generally what we think is the alternate host in our area that holds onto the fungus until it's time to spread it all happily to our tomato plants, that black nightshade. So, to prevent the disease, you want to use resistant or tolerant tomato varieties if you can, and don't save seeds from open pollinated plants that were infected the year before. Use a good crop rotation. Keep your weeds and your volunteer tomato plants at bay, and use proper plant spacing to keep them from touching each other. You want that airflow. Mulch your plants to keep the soil from splashing up on, uh, onto the, the leaves and try to avoid overhead watering, especially during very warm and humid times of the season. Now, if you see signs of the disease, trim off and dispose of all of the infected lower branches and the leaves. This is one reason why I generally will prune my tomatoes so that the leaves and branches that are closest to the ground are completely removed even before I see signs because it's pretty inevitable that we're going to get it here. Um, If you do end up with more signs of the disease, make sure you trim up and remove all of those affected leaves and then treat with an appropriate fungicide for your garden practices. For me, that means a copper fungicide. I'm getting ready to apply my first round of it this week and I'll put a link in the show notes for what I will be using. I am very confident I'll be able to nip it in the bud because yes, I am already seeing signs of it on my lower leaves. And I am thankful this week is predicted to be a little bit lower in humidity so I can trim up the plants and give them a good spray of that copper. So, usually what follows immediately after early blight in my garden is next on my list, which is Septoria leaf spot. But it absolutely can be its own standalone disease in your area. The reason it follows early blight so well is because the fungus that causes it, Septoria lycopersici is most active when temperatures range between 68 and 77 degrees Fahrenheit and the humidity is high and there has been some rainfall or some overhead irrigation wetting the plants. That is usually the conditions that follow our hot, humid weather where the early blight comes in. In fact, we're getting that now with overnight lows in that temperature range. But we're in a dry spell right now, so the humidity isn't quite as bad, but I have no doubt it's coming back soon, and therefore septoria will probably rear its ugly head. Now, septoria leaf spot damages the tomato foliage, the petioles, and the stems, but unlike early blight, the fruit is not infected. Now, infection usually occurs on the lower leaves near the ground after the plants begin to set fruit. You'll get numerous small circular spots with dark borders surrounding a beige-colored center on, once again, the older leaves. These are the ones that are usually closest to the ground. And in the center of those spots, you'll see these tiny black specks, and those are the spore-producing bodies. Severely spotted leaves will turn yellow, they'll die, they'll fall off the plant, and then this defoliation is going to weaken the plant, it's going to reduce the size and the quality of the fruit, and it's going to expose any fruit that does develop to sunscald. Now, this fungus is not soil-borne, but it can overwinter on crop residue from previous crops, decaying vegetation, um, and on some of those weeds related to, to tomato, like that black nightshade that we talked about. So, Prevention includes crop rotation, as always, and cleaning up all the garden debris at the end of the season, keeping those related weeds in check, and not using overhead irrigation. Now, once you see the disease, remove the infected leaves, prune them to ensure good airflow, and then that same copper spray that I'll be using for the early blight can also be used for septoria leaf spots. In my case, using it multiple times in the early part of the season controls both of them, and I'm usually good to go after that. So the next disease on our list is bacterial spot. Now this disease is caused by several species of the bacterium Xanthomonas, which infect green tomatoes, but not red tomatoes. So the disease is more prevalent during wet seasons, Damage to the plants includes leaf and fruit spots, which result in reduced yields, defoliation, and so once again, sun-scalded fruit. The symptoms consist of numerous small angular to irregular water-soaked spots on the leaves and then slightly raised to scabby-looking spots on the fruits that look like black dots, The leaf spots have a yellow halo, and the centers of the spots will start to dry out, and they may cause the leaf to actually tear in the center. Now, the bacteria survive the winter on volunteer tomato plants and on infected plant debris. Seeing a pattern here? Moist weather can also lead to disease development. Another pattern. Most outbreaks of the disease can be traced back to heavy rainstorms that occurred in your area, Infection of the leaves occurs through natural openings, but infection of fruits must occur through insect punctures or other mechanical injuries. So if you see the beginnings of this disease, you want to make sure that you are clearing out as many of the insect pests as you can and be careful not to puncture the fruit while you're working with it. Now, bacterial spot is difficult to control once it appears in your garden. Any water movement from one leaf or plant to another, like splashing raindrops, that overhead irrigation, or touching and handling the plants while they're wet after it's been rained on, that can spread the bacteria from the diseased plants to the healthy plants. So prevention is really important here. Only use disease-free seeds and plants Crop rotation is key, and again, avoiding overhead watering. Remove and dispose of all the diseased plant material if you see any, and then prune your plants to promote air circulation. Once again, a copper fungicide will give fairly good control of this disease and get you all the way through to your harvest. Now, the next disease on our list of dastardly tomato diseases is anthracnose. Anthracnose on tomatoes is caused by a group of fungi within the genus Colletotrichum, and these species are primarily pathogens specifically of the tomato fruit. Now, as the fruit are ripening, the symptoms first become noticeable as small, circular, indented areas, and then that indented area later gets this really dark center to it those diseased spots are going to continue to get bigger and bigger with time because the infection is continuing to spread deeper into the fruit and then if you combine this with warm moist and humid weather you'll see these pinkish colored spores that are standing up from the black fungal material that's in the center of the spots and then those spores are spread by splashing water like you guessed it, rain or overhead irrigation. Now the fungus that causes anthracnose can be transmitted within the seed. So if your seeds aren't certified as being free of this specific fungus, you can take matters into your own hands by treating them, by soaking them in 122 degree Fahrenheit water for 25 minutes to destroy the fungus prior to planting. And there are some varieties of tomatoes that have built in resistance to anthracnose. Once again, do not overhead irrigate your tomatoes. Uh, Splashing water aids in the spread of those fungal spores. How many times are we going to say that in this episode? Plant the garden in a sunny site and stake or cage your tomato plants to provide better air movement and better leaf drying conditions. You want your leaves dry. Keep your garden weed free. The presence of weeds may raise humidity levels around the plants, and that's gonna slow the drying conditions. And of course, you very well may have other weeds in the Solanaceae family that are there that can also harbor this disease. Now, because this disease does affect other plants in the Solanaceae family, you really wanna be sure that you're rotating your crops, preferably nothing in that family in the same space for three years. And like I said, some weeds that infest the garden are also in the same family, which is another reason to keep your garden as free of weeds as possible. Yeah, I know, easier said than done. The fungal spores can remain in the soil to inflict plants the following year. So mulching your garden is going to help create a barrier between that soil surface and the fruit to reduce infections. Um, harvest your tomato fruit daily. And then remove and destroy the crop debris as soon as the crop has finished bearing. Do not add this debris to your compost. You want to burn it or otherwise remove it from your property. Now, fungicide sprays can help reduce anthracnose disease, specifically the copper ones. There are chemical-based products um that can be sprayed weekly to reduce infection it's entirely up to you if you choose to use those just please follow the label directions remember the label is the law for instance there is a 5 day waiting period between spraying and picking if you're using a spray that contains mancozeb so be cognizant of what you're using and how you're using it our next disease is fusarium wilt This is a warm weather disease caused by the fungus Fusarium oxysporum. Now, this is particularly common in the southern U.S., but it can occur anywhere, really. The first indication of disease usually happens early in small plants, where the lower leaves will droop and wilt, and then the leaves begin to turn yellow, and then finally the entire plant just wilts over and dies. Now, often leaves only on one side of the stem will turn yellow at first, and the outside of the stem of these wilted plants won't show any signs of decay, but when you cut it lengthwise, the lower stem will have a dark brown discoloration of the xylem, which is that vascular system that distributes the water throughout the plant. So the fungus is soil-borne, and it passes upward from the roots into the vascular system of the stem, and it blocks the water conducting vessels in the plant, and that causes the plant to wilt and die. There is no chemical control for fusarium wilt. Once it's in your soil, it's there for the long haul. Once you see signs of this in your garden area, you'll need to stop growing anything that is susceptible to the fungus. There are some cultivars that are resistant to Fusarium wilt if you must continue planting, and crop rotation is going to be absolutely important here. But you may end up needing just to create raised beds that contain no native soil in order to prevent the pathogen from taking hold of your plants. Next up, southern blight. This one is caused by the fungus Aethelia rolfaceae. The first symptom, just like other wilts, is the drooping of the leaves. Now on the stems, there will be a brown dry rot that develops right near the soil line. And then there's a white fungal growth with these brown little, I don't know, bumps that look like mustard seeds that'll develop over top of that dry rot area. The stem lesion is going to develop really, really rapidly and it's going to girdle the stem and result in a sudden and permanent wilt of all of the above ground parts of your tomato plant. The fungus can also attack fruits where they touch the soil, so it's important to stake your plants. This fungus can survive for years in the soil and the plant debris, and it is favored most by moist conditions and high temperatures. So crop rotation is essential to preventing southern blight. Do not plant tomatoes after beans or pepper or eggplant. It may also help to plant small grains after any of your solanaceae to help with the control. And removal of plant debris immediately after harvest will also help to control the disease. And finally, on our list of these tomato plagues (laughs) is tomato yellow leaf curl. Now, this is a virus that's transmitted by white flies. We talked about this one a little bit a few episodes ago in our question of the week. This disease is extremely damaging to fruit yield in your tomatoes. White flies bring the disease into the garden from infected weeds nearby, specifically those black nightshades and gymsum weed. After infection, your tomato plants may have no symptoms for as long as two to three weeks. And then suddenly, you'll begin to see the upward curling of the leaves, yellowing of the leaf surface between the veins, we call this chlorosis, You'll have smaller leaves than normal on the plant. The plant will be stunted, and then it'll start dropping its flowers. If tomato plants are infected early in their growth, there may be no fruit formed at all. And this infection may be random throughout the garden. Some plants may get it, and others may not. Removal of plants that have those initial symptoms may slow the spread of the disease and any infected plants that you remove should immediately be bagged up to prevent the spread of the white flies feeding on those plants and then bringing them back into your garden to infect your uninfected plants. Keep your weeds controlled in and around the garden site because again, those weeds may be alternate hosts for the white flies and also for the disease. Now, if you see white flies appear, you can use a neem oil spray to help keep them away or a horticultural oil spray. If you had any infected plants at all, or saw an infestation of white fly, at the end of the season, remove all susceptible plants and burn them or dispose of them elsewhere. You don't want the whitefly feeding on them or overwintering. If this has been a problem in your garden in the past, there are also tomato cultivars that are resistant to tomato yellow leaf curl virus. Thanks for joining me on this Focal Point Friday. I'll be back again on Tuesday for another regular episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. So until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden, and we'll talk again soon.